This morning we continue in our study of the book of Genesis, and we come to chapter 35, verses 6 through 29. But so that we have our context in mind, we will start reading together at verse 1. These are the words of God. That God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hands, and the earrings that were in their ears, And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, that is, God of the house of God. Because there God appeared to him when he had fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth, that is, terebinth of weeping. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel, that is, house of God. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, that is, son of my sadness. But his father called him Benjamin, which is son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. 
The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirhath Arba, that is, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Our great God and Father, we pray that you would open these words to us about these events that you brought to pass some 3,500 years ago, but with four fathers and four mothers in the faith who are our examples still today. Let us take wisdom and strength and courage, Lord, as we understand your wonders and your ways, and may we be made strong and beautiful and glorious to your glory in this day. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What God is doing in our text is bringing the generations of Isaac to a close. Isaac's generations began back in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, when he was about 60 years old. And God answered his prayers by causing Rebekah, his wife, who had been barren for 20 years, to conceive and give birth to the fraternal twins Esau and Jacob. Now this seems strange to us, but the Hebrew word toledot, which is the one translated in your English text, probably genealogy, but it doesn't refer to ancestors. So genealogy is not the best translation. It refers to children. So generations is the better translation. And it not only refers to children in general, it refers specifically and especially to the Christ type whom God was raising up in most every generation at that time as a witness and a testimony to his people to inform their faith, to cultivate their faith by his grace. He's constantly pointing forward to Christ. So Isaac's generations are the story of his sons, Esau and Jacob, but especially of Jacob because he was God's chosen Christ type, the one through whom God pictured various aspects of the person and work of Christ and around whom God would rally his covenant people. And because God is bringing the generations of Isaac to a close, we see in our text God sewing together a number of threads that have been going for some time, bringing them to a conclusion. First, we see God bringing Jacob back to Bethel, where it all began some 30-plus years before with Jacob fleeing from Esau who wanted to kill him, fleeing from Canaan with only his staff in his hand. But God appeared to Jacob because he couldn't make it all the way to the town of Luz before nightfall, so he had to sleep out in the desert a few miles away. And as he slept, God appeared to Jacob in a dream, and Jacob saw heaven open and the Lord standing in heaven, with angels ascending and descending, going up and down between heaven and the earth. 
And God extended the covenant promises to Jacob, the same promises he had made to Abraham and Isaac. And God further specifically promised Jacob that he would be with him wherever he went and would bring him safely back to Canaan. That's all in chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. And then we we saw at the time when we looked at that, that we have indications in that passage reminding us that the one appearing to Jacob, the God appearing, the Lord appearing to Jacob, is specifically God the Son. It's the second person of the Holy Trinity before he was incarnated in the person of the Lord Jesus. This is something that Jesus himself uh, signals to us in the New Testament. In John chapter 1 and verse 51, Jesus says to Nathanael, because as Nathanael's approaching him, Nathanael's never met him, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael goes, Have you ever met me? And Jesus says, Well, I saw you under the sycamore tree before they came and got you. And of course, Nathanael knows there was nobody there with him. And so he realized that this is a miracle, and he he says to, to Jesus, you know, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And Jesus says, because I said I saw you under the sycamore tree, you say that I'm son? He says, most assuredly, I say to you that hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying in so many words here that this story that they would have known very well, he's saying, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the staircase to heaven. I am the joining of heaven and earth. Wherever I am, there is the house of God. Wherever I am, there is the gate of heaven. And so it is Jesus pre-incarnate who is appearing to Jacob. It is Jesus pre-incarnate who is superintending over Jacob as the Christ type in the various ways that Jacob is going to point forward to Jesus. In a real sense, it's Jesus who is testifying through these various Christ types, testifying to his disciples of old, his sons and daughters of old. Well, now in verses 9 through 12, God, Jesus pre-incarnate, appears to Jacob at Bethel once again. And he reminds Jacob that his name is now Israel. This is something that uh, the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate had told Jacob first in chapter 32, verse 28. After Jacob had spent all night wrestling with a stranger. Jacob is waiting. His brother Esau is coming with 400 men. Jacob is very much afraid. He has sent everybody and all his animals across the river. Jacob alone remains on the other side of the river. He's all by himself at night. And some dude shows up and starts wrestling with him. And because Jacob has been wrestling his entire life. Somebody has always been wrestling with him. Esau in the womb. You know, we think that it's Jacob wrestling with Esau because Esau is the firstborn. But God has already decreed that the older will serve the younger. It's Esau wrestling with Jacob 
Okay. Then Jacob has to wrestle with his own father, who was the Christ type in his birth and when he was offered up on the altar, received back as a picture of resurrection. But every one of these Christ types, because they're only a picture, they're not Christ, they're only a picture, they maintain that status for a certain period of time, and then they have to hand it off to somebody else, because at the end of the day, they're a picture of Christ, but they're a disciple like us. They're a believer like us. They have to believe. They have to rally around someone else through whom now God is picturing his son and around whom God is now rallying his people. Isaac didn't pass that off very well because he was bound and determined in spite of God's decree that the covenant headship and blessing was going to go to Esau, not Jacob. So really that whole situation is God sparing Esau, I mean sparing Isaac from disaster. He has to wrestle against his own father. He goes to Laban to get away from Esau and also to find a wife. Then he has to wrestle against his uncle because his uncle is wrestling with him constantly changing his wages and deceiving him and so forth. 20 years of that. And finally God brings him out. Now he's afraid because his brother Esau is coming and some stranger shows up and starts wrestling with Jacob. And it turns out, Jacob figures out before the day dawns, because he's been wrestling all night, that this is not really a man he's wrestling with. This is God he's wrestling with. This is Jesus pre-incarnate he's wrestling with. And it begins to become clear that it is really God that Jacob has been wrestling with all his life. But God, Christ pre-incarnate, is wrestling with Jacob the way a father wrestles with a little two-year-old son. He wrestles with him to make him strong, to make him endure, to make him image the living God to make him grow up to be all that he is meant to be. And he realizes it's been God who's been wrestling with him all along. Others may have intended evil. God has always intended good. And so when God is is departing from him as the sun is coming up, he changes Jacob's name. He says, your name shall be Israel. Jacob means grabber of the hills, uh, of the healed, supplanter. Israel means prince with God. He changes his name and, and he blesses him. And so Jacob has no chance of out wrestling God the son. But he just keeps wrestling and says, I, w- I will not let you go unless you bless me. And that's, that's, that's a really good way and an accurate way of understanding the Christian life and of understanding what true discipleship is. God wrestles with every single one of us just like he wrestled with Jesus to make Jesus stand up to his full height and become all that it means to be the Son of God. God wrestles with every single one of us to make us grow up to be what we're supposed to be in Christ's image. And the the whole thing of discipleship is you continue to wrestle and you continue to say what Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You keep clinging to God. That's one of the things that God will tell Israel. What, what does God want from you, Israel? 
to love the Lord your God, to cling to him. You cling to God. I will not let you go. Like Jacob says, I will not let you go. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so all of this now is flooding back to Jacob as once again Christ pre-incarnate is uh, appearing to him. And he blesses Jacob again. He reiterates the promises to him. And thus he is proving that he has kept his word exactly. He has kept his promise to be with Jacob no matter where he's been, no matter what he's been through. And indeed, God has brought Jacob safely back to the land of Canaan and back to Bethel where it all started. The second thread we see God kind of sewing back in and bringing to a conclusion is God brings Jacob back to his father Isaac in verse 27. The third thread we see God sewing back in and bringing to a conclusion is that God brings to a close three significant lives. First, there is Deborah, who's Rebecca's nurse. Rebecca, of course, is Jacob's mother. She came from Badan Aram, having never seen Isaac. She came based on the word of the faithful servant of Abraham, Eliezer, who came there to find a wife for Isaac. So she travels with him all the way into Canaan to marry him. The one who comes with her is Deborah. She's probably been with Rebecca for her entire life. Now, so Deborah was obviously very special to Rebecca. Now, we're not told this, but when you put two and two together, it appears that Rebecca now has predeceased. She has already died while Jacob has been off in Padan Aram because we simply have no more mention of her. And at this point, Deborah is not with Isaac attending uh, Rebecca. She is now with Jacob's company. And that would make sense when you think that of Deborah's loyalty to Rebecca. If Rebecca has died, uh, Deborah would want to be with Rebecca's son, Jacob, and Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, who would be Rebecca's nieces. And so it would make sense that she would have gone and joined with Jacob's company. But she's a very special person, and it is obvious that she is a very special person to the Lord. In Psalm 116, verse 15, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, all his saints. And that was certainly true of Deborah. We also have the death of Rachel. She dies giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, in verses 16 to 20. So this this trip has a feeling like a trail of tears as they are going along and continuing to travel. They are drawing near to Bethlehem, and Rachel goes into labor, which is very hard and difficult labor. And we see the midwife comforting Rachel. And it's interesting, what she tells her to comfort her is that this son is going to be birthed. This, the baby is going to be fine. And, and we, we see from that, that Rachel's main concern is not that she live, but that her son lives. Because that is what comforted her. 
She names him Ben-Oni, which Ben is the Hebrew word for son. Uh, Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow. But Jacob calls him Benjamin, son of my right hand. And finally, we have the death of Isaac in verses 28 and 29. After Jacob gets back and, and sees him, Isaac dies at 180 years of age and he is buried by his sons Esau and Jacob. We aren't told where he's buried here, but we are told where he's buried in chapter 49. They take Isaac to the same cave that Abraham purchased near Salem, and where Abraham and Sarah are already buried. So Isaac is buried there, and we know later on that Jacob will be buried there. The fourth main thread that we see God sewing together, bringing to a conclusion, is Jacob's Exodus story. We see this Exodus story repeated by God again and again in Scripture because ultimately the Exodus story is going to be the story of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will get to that in just a minute. But in Jacob's Exodus story, what we see is he leaves the promised land. He leaves the promised land to go to Padamaram. He leaves to avoid danger because Esau plans to kill him. Also, his father commands him to go there in order to find a good wife. So he goes to the foreign land of Padamaram to the house of his uncle Laban, which initially is a place of blessing. Because he avoids the danger, he gets there, and very quickly he is betrothed to marry Rachel. So it is a place of blessing. But it turns into a place of curse due to an evil ruler or authority, and specifically this is Jacob's uncle Laban. It becomes a place of affliction and essentially captivity because Laban deceives Jacob into marrying Leah instead of Rachel, And then Jacob has to work another 17 years, 14 years in all, to to then marry the one he loved, which was Rachel. And then Jacob is stuck there another six years on top. So 20 years in which he's essentially been working like a servant. And then in the last part, when he's actually making a wage, Laban is constantly changing Jacob's wages to Laban's advantage. At the same time, Laban is pilfering away. He's spending his daughter's dowries. A dowry would be a, a gift of money from a father and a mother to a daughter that made her an endowed wife, which means she had money of her own that was for her. So if her husband died, if misfortune came along, she would not be destitute. That was one of the main things that distinguished an endowed wife from a concubine. So a concubine is a real wife, but is someone who was a servant, also a wife, and some and one who was not endowed. She has no money of her own. So that's the difference. So anyway, Laban turned out to be someone wicked who was taking advantage of Jacob as well as his two daughters. And while there, though, with all of this sin coming from Laban, the sins of God's people, that is Jacob in his own household, are also revealed. 
It's not the case that Jacob and his wives and all who are with him are just a wonderful, godly, faithful, trusting people always doing the right thing. Because what we see is that Jacob's household is full of envy and resentment and infighting. We see all of that going on. So Jacob's household's sins are also revealed. But in spite of all of this, God intervenes. And he brings Jacob and his family out of this place of oppression. And he brings them out with great wealth. Because for the last six years, no matter what Laban tries to do to take advantage of Jacob, God sovereignly turns the tables on Laban. If Laban says, well, you're going to get the, the spotted sheep, then all the sheep would turn out, all the sheep and goats would be spotted. And then if Laban said, no, 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 not the spotted ones, you're going to get the striped ones, the striped ones, then God would sovereignly change it. And then all the sheep and goats being born would be striped. And so God, he, he basically plundered Laban and gave it to Jacob and to Rachel and Leah. And so he brings them out then with great wealth, God acting in his mercy, and he brings them back to the promised land. These are all common features in the biblical Exodus story. And that then brings us to the fifth main thread that we see in our text. And this one is a thread that God is not bringing to a conclusion. Rather, this is God, one that God is starting to feature because God is starting to show the need for a new Exodus story, which means a new Christ type. Because none of these Exodus stories are the real, final, eternal Exodus story, which is what the world needs. And none of these Christ types are the real Christ. And so God begins to show the need for a new Exodus story with a new Christ type. Last week, we saw the tragedy at Salem, in which Simeon and Levi showed great uh, cruelty, uh, not submission to the Lord, not seeking first the kingdom, to put it in New Testament terms. And we see the need again this week in verses 2 through 4, where Jacob acknowledges that his family, he needs repentance and revival in his own family. And that's what he's calling for when he says, Put away all of your idols. Put away all your false gods. He understands what is at the root of all the stuff, the sin that's showing up in his family. He tells them, change your garments. In other words, turn over a new leaf. Change your heart. Turn toward the Lord. Have the right kind of heart. Put away all these idols. So they leave behind a whole pile of idols. But we see that that repentance and revival were only surface level. We see that sin, we see the sin showing up again this week in Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, who goes and sleeps with Jacob's concubine, that is Jacob's wife, who was also a servant, Bilhah. And so he goes and sleeps with her. So we've already had Simeon and Levi and the slaughter at Salem, and now we have Reuben, the oldest, sleeping with one of his father's wives. This will result in the cursing of Reuben in Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4. 
So you've already, uh, and you'll also have Simeon and Levi being cursed there for the slaughter at Salem. So the first three, the the oldest of Jacob's sons, all three of them are going to be cursed away from taking the covenant headship and, and the covenant blessing and to be the torchbearer, so to speak. So there needs to be a new Exodus story, which means there needs to be a new Christ type. The next Christ type, as we will see in chapter 37, is going to be Joseph. And that will mark the beginnings of the generations of Jacob or the generations of Israel. They will start in chapter 37, verse 2, because at that point, a new Christ type has been revealed and a new Exodus story has begun. The new Exodus story is going to take place in Egypt where uh, Israel, Jacob, and all of his clan will go as a place of blessing because it's going to get them away from famine, famine and starvation. But over time, once again, it's going to turn into a curse with the rise of an evil pharaoh over a span of several generations. But at the same time, the sins of God's people are going to be exposed. But once again, by God's sheer grace, he's going to intervene. He's going to bring his people out with great wealth through still another Christ type who will be Moses. Now, all of these Christ types and all of these Exodus stories in the Old Testament are constantly preaching the gospel. That's the whole point. Preaching the gospel, pointing forward to Jesus and the final Exodus which Jesus is going to bring about through his death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of his spirit upon his people. Because you see, the real exodus has to deliver God's people from the real Pharaoh. The real Pharaoh is Satan, who rules by the power of sin and death. That's the real Pharaoh that has to be dealt with. The real power that has to be broken is the power of sin and death. Now, we will see Jesus um, say this in so many words to his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have it recorded in Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 28. Jesus takes Peter, John, and James and goes up on the mountain to pray. And as he prays, his appearance is altered His robe becomes white and glistening. In other words, his glory of his divinity as God the Son, God incarnate, begins to show through. And as they see him in his blinding and shimmering glory, two men appear and are talking with him. Moses and Elijah appear and are talking to Jesus. So what are they talking about? Well, in the English translations, it says they were speaking of his decease. That's what it says in the New King James. Some English versions will say they were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But the Greek word there is the word exodus. They were talking to Jesus about the exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. How was he going to do that? His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the Spirit. That's all called an exodus. 
Now, we have all kinds of ways that we come up with, analogies and so forth, to think about Jesus' saving work for us. The analogy the Bible always uses is the Exodus. God spent hundreds of years setting up the Exodus story so that we would have a way to understand what Jesus has done for us. And those are the terms in which Jesus uh, thought of it. Because you see, the real Pharaoh is Satan. Our real bondage, all political bondage and economic bondage, all of that's real. All of those are symptoms. All of those are downhill from the real bondage to the real Pharaoh who rules by sin and death. Ultimately, we can't have freedom and blessing in any area if we do not start with having freedom and blessing at that level, being delivered from Satan, sin, and death, being brought home to God, being adopted back into his household as his sons and daughters, having that blessing, that life, that freedom, that is the only real exodus. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul is explaining to Timothy why he has to be patient when he is contending to people who are standing against God and the gospel. Because Paul explains, look, God has to grant them repentance. They don't have the power in and of themselves to turn. God has to grant it. God has to grant that they turn away from themselves and all of their idols and turn toward the living God. God has to grant that they come to know the truth. God has to grant that they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now, this is not saying that every unbeliever is possessed by the devil. They have no true, they don't make their own decisions for their own reason. What he's saying is when people in their lostness have the same fundamental bent of the evil one, that bent of autonomy away from God toward themselves, toward other idols, when they have that same bent, it's extremely easy for Satan to manipulate people like that, whoever they may be. He can manipulate them this way and that way, just like we see as the ramp up to Jesus' crucifixion is coming about and Satan needs all these people who formerly have been political enemies like Pilate and Herod. We're told they, they, had, they didn't like one another. Two politicians, they didn't like one another. Okay, well, guess what? They became friends overnight. What night? The night before Jesus' crucifixion, when it was necessary for them to become friends. It is easy for Satan to manipulate people in that condition, and so he does. And so we see the truth when we look at the way the real exodus plays out in the New Testament, that you don't have to travel to Egypt to be in Egypt. You can take a land of great blessing, knowledge of God, freedom, prosperity, and so forth, and you can turn it into Egypt simply by turning away from the living God who has produced all those blessings. And that, in fact, is what has happened to Israel by the time that Jesus comes on the scene. In fact, in Revelation chapter 11, it refers to Jerusalem as 
spiritual Sodom and spiritual Egypt. Jerusalem is Egypt by the time that Jesus comes. You don't, you don't have to travel to Cairo. You have Egypt right here. Any place that is known the blessing of God, if they turn away, you'll make Egypt right where you are. You don't have to travel to go be under the tyrant Pharaoh. You can grow up your own Pharaohs to be tyrants over you. All you have to do is turn away from the living God. And that's exactly what we see with Israel when Jesus comes on the scene. So in, in the Old Testament, who, who is it that's killing all the baby boys of Israel? Well, it's Pharaoh. Well, who's killing all the baby boys in the New Testament? Why, it's Herod, the king of the Jews. And in the Old Testament, it's Pharaoh who's putting heavy burdens on the people and, and, and bending them down and bowing them down with heavy burdens and heavy labor. Who is it who's putting heavy burdens on the people in the New Testament? Why, it's the religious leaders of Israel. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. God says in Hosea chapter 11 that when he brought Israel out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus and, and gave them the law, he says that he drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and he was, I was to them those who take the yoke from their neck. So giving him them the law, which Jesus tells us is all about loving God and loving neighbor, giving them the law was not putting a heavy burden on the people. It was taking a burden off of people, and it was drawing them with the gentle bonds of love. That's the way God portrays it in Hosea chapter 11. And so Jesus says again, the scribes and Pharisees bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, Matthew 23, 4. And he says, in contrast, my yoke is easy, my burden's light. God's yoke and God's burden has always been light. Because when Jesus takes off the heavy burdens, he's taking off the stuff that the law never said. All of the stuff that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, all of that, he's knocking the barnacles off of the law, all of that gunk that's been added to it. All of those things are the heavy burdens. Jesus is taking all of that off, and the people feel this lightness. But then Jesus talks about what the law actually says. He says, takes off all this other stuff, but then says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. If you're angry with your brother without cause, you've committed murder. So he takes all these heavy weights and stuff that God never said. He takes all of that off. And then he says, let me show you what the law really says. And he takes this, this dagger and he just plunges it all the way in to his people. But you see, that's about love. That's about actually loving God and loving one another. So that's what Jesus is doing. So the whole New Testament, finally, we've gotten to the real Exodus, the real one. And finally, we're not dealing with a Christ type anymore. We're dealing with Christ, the one who delivers us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.